I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up on The Trade Guys, we'll talk about President Biden invoking the Defense Production Act. We'll talk about the Indo-Pacific framework and much more. So get ready. Here come The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, The Trade Guys are back, and it's time to talk about the Defense Production Act. President Biden this week invoked the DPA, Defense Production Act of 1950, to spur domestic output of critical minerals with the goal of reducing U.S. reliance on China for key inputs to clean energy technologies. This action is part of a two-part plan that was announced Thursday to address rising energy prices amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine while supporting the U.S. transition to clean energy over the long term, according to the White House. Guys, what do you think about this? Let's start with the, the, the basics of energy production. All energy production, as best I can tell, begins with resource extraction of some sort. I mean, you want to make charcoal, which we used in the 18th century, then you cut down trees. So it all starts there. You want to make a windmill that takes steel. The steel takes coal. So these things are linked to resource utilization, resource extraction, and conversion that produce useful energy and store it. In, in many ways, this is not a new problem at all, but it is an important one given the, the size of uh, the Earth's crust that the United States happens to have in its territory. So I think this, is, this could be good, but and certainly is essential to the production of any kind of energy, whether it's, whether it's exploring for and, uh, and extracting hydrocarbons or it's exploring for and extracting the minerals that you need to make batteries or whatever the clean energy technology or uranium if you want zero carbon nuclear power. So it all comes back to this. The question is, to what extent will these mineral extraction projects be covered and for how long? Because mining projects have a very long life cycle, probably in the, on the order of 50 years or so, you know, start to finish. So um, what, what, what's actually covered will, will be important and the duration of the coverage and if this would survive even a change in executive. So I'm sorry, Scott. The, the, pres- the president is clearly tying this to national security. He said, quote, building a made in America clean energy future will help safeguard our national security. So yes, but it's, a, it's also done by executive order, which we've seen a few reversals in that space. We have indeed. Well, the Defense Production Act is sort of by definition an executive action. I mean, it, there's a specific statutory authority that underlies it, but it's always going to be an executive. I think the national security link is what I'd say a word about because uh, the concern has been where we're dependent on China for items that we need for security purposes or for economic competitiveness purposes. And I think this is in part a response to that. And there, I think the real problem, as we've said uh, in the past, is on processing capability and not on the presence of minerals. There's a lot of uh, mineral. I think, 17 of the minerals in, in question that we import 100% of our consumption and a bunch more where we import a substantial portion of our consumption. That doesn't mean we don't have any of them. What it means is that it's more efficient economically in a market economy to import First, there's a lot of sources for those minerals besides China. China is not the only source of the minerals. Where China has not entirely a monopoly, but in in many respects a a huge advantage, is its processing facilities. I mean, basically, for a lot of these minerals, what you do is you, you know, extraction, 
when you use the word extraction, it sounds like you're going into a mine and you're digging out big lumps of whatever it is that you're going after. And I think things like lithium don't really come in big lumps. What you do is scoop up enormous amounts of dirt and maybe 1% of that dirt is lithium. And so what you have to do is a lot of processing to turn a whole pile of dirt into a usable uh, element, not element, mineral that you can then go on and manufacture something with. The Chinese do that. Our efforts to do that haven't been very successful. We've had some companies do that that have gone broke because it's cheaper. It has been cheaper and more efficient to let other people uh, do that. And frankly, you know, if you look back pre-climate crisis, a lot of people said this is a dirty, messy business. It's an environmentally dirty business. And I think there were a lot of people who thought, well, if the Chinese want to ruin their environment, let's let them, you know, and then we'll buy the proceeds from that. We're in a different situation now because we've realized that we can't make batteries, which means we can't convert to electric cars, in la- among other things, unless we can access these materials. So I think what the president has done is, is wise, but I'm particularly interested in the extent to which he's going to use this to create or encourage the creation of processing facilities in the United States, because that's the place to break the Chinese monopoly. Well, so, Bill, let me ask you, the decision plays into broader discussions about the need to reduce U.S. reliance on China. Is reshoring the most effective way to do that? Well, our research has shown that it is not. We did a paper on reshoring and nearshoring in the pharmaceutical sector that we published last year. And we're about, I think, either next week or the week after to publish an updated version that actually looks at some case studies. We concluded that in a lot of, well, in that sector in particular, but I think in others, nearshoring makes the most sense. Reshoring, I mean, it, it varies by company and sector and industry. Reshoring is problematic because costs in the United States are higher. Labor costs are higher, and and sometimes other costs are higher. And in some cases, if you're doing something that's environmentally sensitive, you know, the cost of permitting and the time associated with it is higher. So what we looked at instead was, let's find reliable alternatives. And we developed what was called a trusted partnership model, which is let's look at countries that we can negotiate with that will become reliable suppliers of products that we need. And, you know, we came out with a model that had some criteria for how to do that. And the study that's about to come out looks at some very specific case studies. In this case, Canada, Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil, thinking nearshoring, that means, among other things, near, not far away. And we'll be commenting on which of those makes the most sense. And I think that's going to be a better model. Trump tried to bring work back here, bring jobs back here. You know, and you can change the rules, as he did with Mexican autos, and force that but we you know we studied that too. The cost of doing that is you make a U.S. industry that is less competitive globally. So there's a trade-off. You can create more domestic jobs, but you hurt the industry that's the beneficiary of that at the same time. We think nearshoring works better. The Biden administration gives lip service to that. I mean, when they talk about this, they talk about working with friends and allies. It's not clear yet whether they mean it. And that's what we're kind of waiting to find out. Well, that's to your point, Bill. We've got, we've got to understand the scope of this and also to the extent, does it affect the regulatory framework that these companies face? Often the DPA has been used to not circumvent it, but to relieve the regulatory burdens to accelerate production for national defense reasons. Yeah, this becomes uh, this becomes a NIMBY issue. I mean, do you want a, right. a lithium processing facility, you know, in your backyard? Well, there's it happens to be a company called Piedmont Lithium that's in that very business in North Carolina. So... So it's in your backyard. 
Right. Well, it's used by backyard. <laughs> so, so Scott uh, is not it, worried about being it being in his backyard. You hear this, Bill? This is a thing. Yeah. The, and so there, there's actually a company now permitting and getting uh, authorizations, both local, federal, and state, are quite quite a challenge for the company. And so I'm quite interested to see if you actually want lithium production and processing in the United States, there are companies in that business. I'd like to see the extent to which this order by the Biden administration will affect speed and uh, efficiency of those operations. Well, and you've both alluded to the fact that this could have long-term implications for the global trading system as we know it, correct? Well, yes, because what you're doing is essentially moving away from market principles. I mean, you're not moving away from market principles like non-market economies have moved away from market principles. But what you're telling companies to do is to insert a new variable into your uh, location calculations. And normally your location calculations or your supply chain calculations focus on price quality and delivery. And now you're saying build in another one, which is resilience, which is a fancy term for don't put all your eggs in one basket, which makes a lot of sense. You know, it's hard to argue that you shouldn't be resilient. But what that tells supply chain managers really is do something that's suboptimal from an economic point of view. Because if you do that, you're going to not be doing least price. Hopefully, you're still doing best quality, but you're certainly not going to be doing least price because you've injected a criterion into the equation that has nothing to do with price. Now, big picture, companies are used to this for a long time. I and mean, when companies decide where to invest in countries, it's not just where's the cheapest place to go. Is it a rule of law country? Years ago, when I was running the National Foreign Trade Council, I had a meeting with a particular company that talked about how they make investment decisions in other countries. And they had a list of 18 factors, which they considered each time. And he wouldn't tell us all of them, but, but they were things that you don't always think about. One was uh, rule of law. One was policy stability. You know, the likelihood that what the government's doing today is the same thing they're going to be doing five years from now. A big one was educated workforce. Another one was language compatibility. The immediate question that we were looking then is, why do you invest in Ireland? And the big reason why they were investing in Ireland was it had an educated, dedicated, competent workforce that spoke the same language. Tax policy was an issue, but it wasn't the most important one. But they also had confidence that, you know, the Irish government's policies, regardless of an election, were going to be pretty much the same five years from now that they were when the company began there. So there's always a host of non-economic factors that go into these things. But when you're telling supply chain managers now, diversify your, your supply chain, you're telling them to do something that's less economic. And what that means is somewhat more inflation, because you're telling them, engage in a production process that is more expensive and more time consuming. And in the end, it's the consumers that pay for that. So is it fair to say that we're coming to the conclusion in the United States that relying on China for medical ingredients and minerals is just not sustainable? I think so. I think we've come to it some time ago. To me, the question is sort of the definitional one of where are we going to say that and where are we going to say that it doesn't matter? You know, how do we define what our security actually is? I mean, when the president came out with those reports last June on semiconductors, critical minerals, which is what we've been talking about, pharmaceuticals and PPE and batteries, as I recall, I don't think there was a big argument about those not being important. You know, I think everybody would agree that those are national security things. But if you get beyond that, it gets more complicated. I mean, the one we were talking about was solar panels. 
And the domestic solar panel industry, the people that make them here, argue that we have to have this domestic capability and we don't want to be dependent on Chinese panels. Well, the industry that installs the panels, which account for, I think, what, 10 to 12 times more workers than the companies that make them in the United States, argues if you want to facilitate the transition to solar and the transition to renewables, we need panels from wherever we can get them. And that includes China. And that kind of raises the question that the administration is, has not clearly answered. Do solar, are solar panels a security matter? Do they really matter? You get different answers depending on, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. If you make them here, then, of course, it's a high security item. Well, look, what, what Bill's getting at is that national security is often in the eye of the beholder. You reach a stage where it really takes judgment. I'm all for not having all our eggs in one basket. I think it's, it's wise to have resilience in your supply networks, whatever they might be. And, and the materials and products we've been talking about, I see the justification for it. But at some point, the, the national security rationale does not get you all the answers that you need to make the decision. Scott, I really like that, that national security is in the eye of the beholder. That is quite a phrase. Well, I was going to say, I, I think I've, I've told the story lots of times, but I'll remind everybody. We had this debate in an amusing way a number of years ago with the Chinese company, Shuangwei, bought Smithfield, the pork producer. You've got senators arguing that that transaction should be blocked on national security grounds. And their argument basically was uh, bacon is a national security item. <laughs> well, you know, there are people that probably agree with that. Some days I would say that. But, you know, let's get real. I, you know, I think the country can live with without quite as much bacon as we have so far? Uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah, it, it is the dessert of meats, that's for sure. <laughs> a very important product to Americans. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> there was a breakfast at CSIS earlier this week, and I have to tell you, the bacon was terrible. Oh, no. Well, we'll have to register that complaint. Bill, we're just getting back into the office, and I think we're just getting our kitchens back up and running. So, you know, we got to give it a little bit of time. I apparently, but I'm I have hopes for the next time. We may go on a bacon rant here. It sounds like <laughs> no more. I'm done with bacon. So, <laughs> all right, done with bacon. <laughs> Indo-Pacific Economic Framework (IPEF) U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai met with Singapore's Prime Minister on Tuesday to discuss the administration's proposed high ambition Indo-Pacific trade framework. But what it is not is an American return to an 11-nation Pacific trade bloc, aka TPP. One of the things she said that struck me in her March news conference when she said free trade agreements are very 20th century tools. While they belong in the toolbox, newer defensive tools are required to protect the interests of the American worker, she said. I guess the key question here is, we've talked a lot about IPEF on trade, guys, mostly because we haven't had any details. So with Ambassador Tai in Singapore and Dalip Singh in India last week also discussed IPEF, are we finally seeing policy taking shape? Well, not a lot of meat on the bone, <laughs> going back to the bacon analogy. And they're, they're struggling to put some on. We've put a paper out on this. We've had a number of conversations with them about this because the Singaporean prime minister who was here last week, he met with the president last week, and he referred to the IPEF as baby steps, which I think was an apt description. You know, it's, it's a small step forward. And I have to say, I think that USTR's description of free trade agreements as a 20th century tool is, I mean, it's just factually wrong. I mean, if you look at US trade agreements, Almost all of them were negotiated in the 21st century to begin with. So it's not a 20th century tool. It, it may be passe, which would be a, a more accurate way to say it. But I think she's wrong about that. 
And she's clearly wrong about it. If you listen to the Asian countries that we've been talking about, and I think she probably heard this when she was in Singapore, because what they say is market access matters. And their question back to USTR on the trade pillar, because there are other pillars, but on the trade pillar is what's in it for us? You've got a, you've got a whole long list of asks. You want us to have digital standards. You want us to have labor standards. You want us to decarbonize. You want us to do all these things. What are you giving us? And the answer is, so far, nothing. And yeah. they're scrambling to come up with what can we give them. I think so far the answer is, is money, but that relates to the infrastructure and climate pillars. There's not a lot in, in Ambassador Tai's toolbox that promises these guys anything. You know, I, I've been thinking about the comment you started off with, Andrew, which is this notion that Ambassador Tai seems to think that the free trade and trade market opening through trade agreements is a 20th century notion. But it strikes me that the USTR and, and the people involved in this IPEF are looking at Asia Pacific as if it's still the 1990s. If you look at the negotiating agenda and the objectives that they've laid out so far, they're still operating as if the United States is this gigantic export opportunity for everybody with or without changes in terms of trade. That it were the, you know, in the 90s, of course, we were the unipolar superpower. And we sucked in imports from everywhere. And we still do to some extent, but it's, it's as if that's adequate. But in addition, if you look at the arguments that are and the issues that are being raised by the policy community, particularly members of Congress, we want to fight about Taiwan in this particular arrangement. Well, in the early 90s, the U.S. was able to manage Taiwan and Hong Kong, joining APEC at the same time as China and maintain the WTO accession for Taiwan alongside of China. Good luck with that today. I mean, China's in a very different economic and strategic position. Likewise, India, I'm going back to the 90s and, and the APEC meetings, that during APEC expansion, India was outright ignored in the process. And probably for good reason. I'm not contesting those issues. But, but if we're treating India like we did in the 90s, which it seems we are, I think we're missing it. Because India is, is finding their own footing in the world. They are steering clear, for instance, of the Ukraine conflict entirely. They are going to be happy to buy Russian oil. They're going to be happy to sell Indian consumer products to Russia. And so that's a different force and a different dynamic in the Indo-Pacific than we dealt with when the agreements that exist were formed or launched. Well, that's not staying clear of, Scott, that's not staying clear of the Russia of the war. That's oh, helping the no, Russians. That's helping the Russians. Well, they're, they're, yes, from our standpoint, all right, yes, but they've come to a different geopolitical calculation. Is the point? Yeah, but that's really a. I think that's where they've been historically for years. They get most of their weapons from from Russia. They have a military dependency on them. This isn't anything. No, no you're, you're right, Bill. That's not new. But keep in mind, the United States State Department is lecturing India on how, how they should manage their foreign policy at the same time as the U.S. Trade Representative is looking for an Indo-Pacific forum. You know, which is it? Right. Well, we've got to we've got to think about India more holistically, is my point. We can't think about India the way we did in the 90s. One of the peculiarities of the IPEF discussion, and we've had this conversation with them, and I, I just don't understand it. You'd think they'd want in as many people as possible, right. but they're being very selective about it. You know, if you look at the Pacific, they're not inviting anybody on the eastern edge of the Pacific. So Canada, Mexico, Peru, Chile, Colombia, all countries we have trade agreements with, they're not welcome. Nobody in Central America is being invited. In the case of Southeast Asia, there's countries that are not welcome, in some cases for obvious reasons, like Myanmar. China would be another one. 
they seem to be focusing beyond what everybody refers to as the usual suspects, which is Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Japan, and probably Korea. They seem to be looking at Vietnam and Indonesia. They are, I think, belatedly talking to the Philippines. It took a while. Thailand, I think, is interested, but is not. I don't think they're paying a lot of attention to the Thais. I'm not sure that they're paying much attention to Malaysia. Brunei seems to be off the list. I mean, that's not a big country, but and then India, I think, is, despite the name Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, I don't think they're looking at India seriously. Although I have to say, in that case, I think it's because a lot of the other Asian countries told them, after what we went through with India on the RCEP negotiation, where basically they jerked us around for 15 years and then dropped out, there's not a lot of enthusiasm amongst other Asian countries for another trade negotiation with India. But Taiwan, which makes a lot of economic sense, I'd be very surprised if they get in too. So at the same time, Catherine's saying, we need more participants, you know, we need more members. They're not doing very much to get more members. In other words, it's a mess. (laughs) So work in progress. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) That's that's kinder. Guys, we have a couple minutes left and we've already talked about bacon. Let's talk about potatoes. How about that? Because like, you know, you can't have bacon without hash browns, right, in the morning. You want to talk about the freight crisis in Brussels? Yeah. No, this is, this is Mexico Mexico and fresh potatoes, Bill. This yeah, is I know, but the freight free crisis is more fun. Yes. French fries right. is a lot more fun, but Secretary Vilsack and Ambassador Tai have expressed concerns over biotech regulations in Mexico and are seeking to expand market access for U.S. potatoes in the country. Why has the North American trade of potatoes been so difficult? I thought this was solved. Didn't Vilsack say that, that we won or that they uh, promised to do it? We, we won on mar- market access for fresh potatoes. So, yes. What I don't know is whether the, the biotech issues themselves are still a matter of contention. But, but, uh, but look, food safety issues are a long, have a long history in trade negotiations. They're difficult to get agreement to, and they tend to fall apart fairly easily just because circumstances change and agricultural practices differ. And there's a lot going on there. And uh, the U.S. and Mexico have a much more integrated agricultural industry than they did before NAFTA. It's best seen in the fresh fruits and vegetables that are in grocery stores and the, the way that every week your store has fresh fruits and vegetables. And so there are major benefits, but there are still differences in consumption, differences in habit, and differences in grower practices that show up in things like fresh potatoes. Yeah, for all our talk about a digital economy and a 21st century economy and all of our focus on technology, it's these decades-old issues that trip us up. With Mexico, we talked about the guacamole crisis a month ago, and that was about avocados. We There's sure a did. tomato issue that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, this ongoing dumping issue with tomatoes that the Florida tomato growers are very upset about. The corn growers, the corn refiners have serious issues with being able to access, get their products into Mexico. Agriculture keeps coming back as one of these insoluble trade problems. So let the record show that Andrew's nodding yes when he. No, I'm not. I'm not. This yeah. is the thing. You got me really worried now, Bill. So I don't really know what to say. I mean, what's life without French fries? Well, look, I'm glad Secretary Vilsack thinks that there's a good solution for fresh potatoes. That's at least one problem solved. I do worry about the agricultural space over the next 12 months or so. There are going to be a lot fewer calories available for people of the world to consume 
maybe 10 or 15% fewer calories available. Because of the war. Because of the war and, and its consequences. You know, we're joking around about French fries, but that's a serious issue. And that's where, so good, good to solve a few small problems. Maybe they use it as a confidence builder, but there's a big problem on the horizon and we'll all need to work together to make the best of what's going to be, I think, a tough situation. And I am sure we will continue talking about that issue on the trade, guys. Guys, thanks yeah. very much. This is a great episode. We'll be back, same trade channel next week. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast. Listeners, Greg Poland here, director of the Southeast Asia Program and the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. Just wanted to let you know that we're launching a new podcast on Thursday, April 14th, called Southeast Asia Radio. I'll be joined by my good friend and co-host, the brilliant Alina Noor, director of political and security affairs at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Hi, everybody. Along with Simon Tranhudas and other members of the CSIS Southeast Asia team. Hi. Every two weeks, we'll highlight the most important news from the region and dive into candid conversations with leading voices on Southeast Asia and U.S. foreign policy. We'll cover everything you want to know about Southeast Asia. Geopolitics in the region, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, democracy and human rights, nothing is off limits. So join us for Southeast Asia Radio, April 14th, wherever you get your podcasts.